Park. It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct Mysteries, the genre-defining series of police procedural novels which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with the novel Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series and today's podcast is all about book number 19. Will he? Won't he? Will he? Won't he? Will he? Won't he? It's He Who Hesitates. To review the book, I'm joined by the two legendary stool pigeons, Mr. Morgan Twelve Fingers Brown. Hello. And Mr. Stephen Rolling Stock Royston. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) And here's your usual reminder that you can find us across all social media and podcast apps as Park 87 Podcast. And if you'd like to drop us $3 for a digital coffee, it's easy to do. You can visit coffee.com, ko-fi.com, slash harkpodcast, and donate towards running the show, and then maybe I can get uh, Steve-O and Morgan nice microphones like my new mice mice microphone. Imagine a mice microphone. Well, I've got one. Hello, everyone. We'd all like one. Yeah. Ah, are you all right, gentlemen? Very well. I thought I'd read the wrong book when you were doing that introduction then. No, I was being clever. (laughs) I thought it was something like that. Something along those lines. There's not masses and facts and information relating to this that I could drag up. I've got a few bits. Hmm. But I think, as usual, we've got to work out what was going on in 1965. Mm -hmm. There was two books out in 1965. So this is from the start of the year. It was copyright uh let me get the date for the copyright which i have managed to put on a different piece of paper i think it was april it was it was the 26th of april 1965 so that's where that's where we start really great so i've got a few little things from the charts and as usual for new listeners which i'm sure there's loads loads millions the figures of the last podcast to go by there aren't <laughs> what we like to do is Try and put the book in context by having a look at the stuff that was going on in the world in sort of arts and politics and all that sort of stuff in order to, you know, try and A, give you an impression of the landscape into which the book arrives and B, let us talk about nonsense to, <laughs> to British ephemera, basically. Yeah. 26th of April 1965-ish. Shall we start with music, as usual? Anyone want to have a stab at the top five entries? <laughs> Mm. Got to be the Beatles, surely. April? April 1965. Pretty well established by this point. Yeah. They would have, what was it, Rubber Soul Revolver? How was out around then? Well, you need to think singles rather than albums. Well, I'm trying to think which. Because they don't really necessarily they don't tie up at that tie point. They they know. When was Penny Lane? Was that 65? 67. 67. Yeah. Well, I won't keep me guessing. They are number one in the UK. Finally, we've got a chart hey. where the Beatles are number one with Ticket to Ride. Oh, yeah, of course. Right. So, yeah, kind of help era. Help-ish. Yeah. Help-esque. So they're number one there. They're not in the top five in America, but basically there's tons of British pop in, in British the American... Invasion. Yeah, at this point, the British invasion is... It's really dug its talons in since sort of the start of the previous year. So if you want to have a stab at who you think might be in the American top five. Herman's Hermits. Herman's Hermits at number one. Yes. With Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. One of the more Classic. unlikely number one singles. <laughs> Dozy Dean. Dozy D. Dozy Dean. 
Ber- Berkey <laughs> McIntitch. With all those Greek songs. <laughs> Berkey. <laughs> Dave D. Dozy Beaky McIntitch. Yeah, with all those Greek songs that they did. Oh, you mean yeah. Zabadak? Yeah. Uh, they're not in the top five, no. I'm not sure uh, that they were quite... Dave Clark as... Five in 1965. Dave Clark Five are definitely around. They're not in mm. either of the top fives at this point, anyway. Uh, Stones? No, them either. Kinks again, I said those last week. And you would be wrong this week. Who? No. No, probably not in the States yet. They didn't really make it there until 67-ish. Um, oh. Are we too early for... Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only for what? Sounding like a record player winding down. What, what are they? Cause Give us a clue. They seem to really latch on to some of the kind of, I don't want to say lamer British groups. but the, well, they, they were just, they were just so excited by anything British at that point. Yeah. And the monkeys. And the record, no. <laughs> the record companies were putting stuff out. The monkeys had been around, probably, I think started about 65, didn't they? The monkeys? Probably about Five, then, six yeah. or something like that. But that's not, I'll give you some, I'll, I'll give you the rundown. Top five in the UK, Ticket to Ride. Number two, Here Comes the Night by Them. Oh, yeah. Number three, The Minute You're Gone by Cliff Richard. Don't know that Cliff Richard song. No. Number four, Concrete and Clay by Unit 4 Plus 2. Oh, smashing. That's a bit of a stormer. It is. And then Little Things by Dave Berry. Dave Berry, of course. He's yeah. doing all right, Dave Berry, at uh, this point. In America, we, as I say, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter by Herman's Hermits. Just, it is a weird song to think of that as a number one in the pop charts. It's no no milk today. That's I was for sure. Say, they do no milk today. They no did. milk today. <laughs> number t- number two in the charts was "Game of Love" by Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders. <sighs> yeah, an art corker. Then Pet Clark, Petula Clark with "I Know a Place." I don't know the song, oh. but she was one of the sort of she was quite an important vanguard for the British invasion. I suppose so. Yeah. Then, brilliantly, at number four in America was I'm Telling You Now by Freddie and the Dreamers. <laughs> which I, I really do like Freddie and the Dreamers quite a lot. But I was, co- I was considering saying them and also Billy J. Kramer and the, and the Dakotas, but... Uh... Yeah, the, <laughs> Billy J's not around. But I'll, I'll Never Find Another You by the Seekers, ah, yes, who Seekers. are British invasion by proxy, because mm. they're Australian, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, so there you go. Music, it's becoming much more the modern idea of what the 60s is rather than that weird sort of 50s hangover that we've had for a little while. Mm -hmm. Anyway, some good tunes in there. What about movies? Movies? Um, 1965. What was the Bond film in 65? Thunderball? Was that 65? It was, yes. So that was quite a big one. Excellent. Um, Obviously that was... By that point, Bond was massive across the world. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time Thunderlaw came out, Help, Help by the Beatles. <laughs> yes, that was obviously a massive film in the UK and across the world as well. I love the film Help, and I've not watched it for ages. I used to watch it all the time. Mm. It used to be one of those films I could put on and did on repeat, <laughs> sort of like immediately yeah. watch it after finishing. Um, Good spy film, Ipcrest File. Ipcrest File, yeah, yeah. phenomenal. Mm. Sound of Music was the big one. Mm. So that was the dominating massive film of 1965. Would have been dominating the album charts as well. So I, I think it, yeah. it hung around there for ever. Doctor Zhivago was huge mm. as well. I've never seen that film of no, Doctor Zhivago. And lots of snow. Lots and lots of snow. Those magnificent men in their flying machines. One oh, of those sort of classic cracking. capers. Yes. Used to like watching that. It used to crop up on mm. bank holiday TV, didn't it? And a couple of others. Gonks go beat. Which is really one of the most ludicrous pop films you'll ever see. 
I've never heard of it. I've got it taped on my TiVo box. It's it has to be seen to be believed. The main character is Kenneth Connor. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> Who, it Who else? On the subject of Kenneth Connor. Who else? Which carry on film? Oh, Let's God. see, Steve. Um, right. Well, what what had been happening? What had, what was happening will not help you in the slightest. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, it gives us me as much chance. We, are we just looking for one? Just one this time. Yeah, only one. Are we in like kind of Sid James? Very, era oh, now? this is this is this is deep Sid James territory. <laughs> carry on, lose your head, or whatever it's called. No, that's a bit later. I think. Mm. See, all the ones I remember are always the later like the 70s ones. Seventies ones. Yeah. Yeah. Carry on up the street. Is that one? No. <laughs> okay, that on. sounds like they were doing some sort of gritty sort of yeah, kitchen like sink kitchen, drama, yeah. but with carrying on. <laughs> For the uninitiated, that was an approximation of Sid James's laugh, and I emphasise approximation. Yeah. Well, I have a very poor concept of what order they came in. Well, um, so it's carry on decorating. I've also forgotten which ones we've had at this stage. Yeah, I'm not doing a, um, a list of ones we've already done. At your convenience. No, well, that's quite a good one. Carry on conductor, was it one about buses? No, no you're thinking of on the buses. Oh, right. That's a whole other ball <laughs> game. They've done like a rival bus <laughs> comedy. Well, no. you know. It was actually Carry On Cowboy. Oh, right. I have heard of that one. Yeah, I mm. think Sid James was the lead in that one. Hammer films, oh, no oh, real oh, horrors. Right, we're not into the kind of classic. Are we not? Are we not into? There's only really one. Is that's, the Gorgon? Was that not? That's six, about then. Yeah, I think 65? that might that might be about then. The reptile. We're we need to be thinking further back in time. Oh, oh, tenth thousand BC. Oh, do you mean one million years BC? Oh, yeah, that, that as well, that... yeah. The prequel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one million years BC. Which was obviously historically accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It's all right, that, though. It's not a bad it's got film. It's like a giant crab. Well, it's a normal crab. Yeah. Made big. Like iguanas. Great. <laughs> so that was... that was uh, their most successful. I think so. One of their most successful mm. films. Maybe the, was after that... On the Buses, because I think On the Buses... Was their most successful, and I think it after that was one million years BC. Yeah, was which one was that? Was that Ursula Andress in that one, or was it the other one, Raquel Welsh? Raquel Welsh. Was yeah. it Ursula Andress? Was in She? I that, think was the I other big hit so, from yeah. that year. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that one was Raquel Welsh and a mammoth fur bikini, wasn't it? I think. Yes. So was, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like let's skip forward through a couple more bits and pieces. Let politics and events. Oh, 1965. Oh, this is a good one, Steve. Oh, you'll like oh, this. Oh, the first Asda opened in Castleford in oh, Yorkshire. Oh, did it? Associated Dairies. Yeah. Yes. So that's a supermarket, everyone. <laughs> uh, Liverpool won the FA Cup for the first time, mm-hmm. beating Leeds 2 1. Well. Churchill died. There was, oh, I mean, there's all sorts going on in America. It's, it's, it was a bit strange doing a bit of research into politics in America in this particular time of 1965 because there's lots of race riots. Yeah, everything's starting to get pretty volatile, isn't it? But there are acts of. Congress, is it? I don't know. The Immigration and Voting Acts come in, as does Medicaid and Medicare. So a lot of the stuff that's now being eroded or changed has sort of come in into force at this period as well, in response to things like the Watts riots, I believe. Because also the assassination of Malcolm X happens in February of that year. The first Super Bowl is played. The first Super Bowl proper in the modern sense. Uh, The Green Bay Packers winning that. They did? 35-10 to against... The Kansas City Chiefs. Quick bit about television. 
one of our, I think one of our joint favourite shows of all time started in 1965. A comedy show featuring a comedy duo. I think we not all... Not only but also? Yeah, not only but also oh, course, with yeah. Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Excellent. Which is a genuine favourite, I'd say, of all of us, isn't it? It's it's a corker. What, what's left of it in yeah. the archives, anyway. That would be when they uh, started uh, making little appearances on um, Ready Steady Go and stuff, too. Yes, they were... They sort of hit quite large, didn't they, once they got onto TV? Yeah, I've definitely got a, a VHS tape somewhere of them and the Beatles on the same episode at some point. Oh, the amount of cool that's compacted into <laughs> yeah. one space. Well, I think John Lennon was on an episode of... Not only, but also, yeah, yeah, yeah he was. Yeah. He did a few sketches and read some poetry from his books. And I don't think much of that exists. Um, Having said that, oh, do you know what? I'm not going to go on a rant about what the BBC's got in their archives and what they release. <laughs> that's for another discussion elsewhere. Also, uh, Thunderbirds starts, a good oh, puppet-based adventure marvelous. series. Was that in colour then at the beginning, Thunderbirds, or was it black and white? It was on ITV, so it might have... I don't know. If, I don't know, actually, now. I think it was very early to be coloured. It may have been made in colour, because it was made on film. Possibly, sort of, yeah. Because did, didn't we... Everything go kind of colour in... Late 67. Yeah, yeah. I think. Well, it's interesting, because BBC Two, the second of the national broadcast channels only came on air in the north of England in 1965. It's like they sort of went, oh, the northerners can have another channel. <laughs> it had been on air for a year already elsewhere. In American TV, I'm sure people can tell us whether these are popular. Well, we know Lost in Space is popular. Mm. Land of the Giants. Even better. My Mother the Car. <laughs> <laughs> that classic. Which, Timeless. can you guess what happens in the TV series My Mother the Car? Um, if you can't, then you need to get out, really. <laughs> Somebody gets run over by a car and then turns into it. No, someone buys an old, like, beat-up jalopy-type car and, and it's, it's possessed, possessed by <laughs> his, yeah. his mother. I assume a bit like on The Simpsons where they have the, the, the skit of the lovematic grandpa where he gets killed by a love-tester machine and, and his uh, spirit inhabits that. I believe that is the origin of that joke, yes. Yeah. That would make sense. My, My mother, mother the car. <laughs> right, let's get back towards Ed McBain, etc. In terms of things that Evan Hunter slash Ed McBain was up to at this point, he only put out one other book other than the 87th Precinct books in 1965, and that was The Centuries, which I have oh, read yeah. and can't remember anything about off the top of my head. I think it's to do with averting nuclear war. Mm. It's, again, it's a little sort of. It's about the same size as, a, as an 87th Precinct novel, but that's the only other thing he really put out in 1965. Mm. So that's that taken care of. So there's a little bit of contextual stuff. We really should get into this story, shouldn't we? I suppose so, yeah. But before we do, we'll have an advert from one of our friends. Alan, people like stories. I don't know, Rob, not according to our listener statistics. Nah, statistics lie, Alan. People love listening to stories, or even better, listening to a pulp or vintage story with their best friend interrupting with jokes and other nonsense. I'm not sure I can commit to multiple additional best friends right now. Well, then, it's a good thing we're already best friends who co-host a podcast just like that called Interrupted Tales. Every episode, we tell a complete story of romance, sci-fi, crime, adventure, sports, horror, all with added jokes, commentary, and nerdy references. You can get it on all major podcast platforms or go to interruptedtales.com. You know what, Rob? I've reconsidered, and I am open to new friendship opportunities. 
That's perfect timing because now everybody knows they should listen to Interrupted Tales. And we're back. And we're ready to talk about He Who Hesitates. So I've mentioned that it was copyrighted 26th of April 1965. This is a good publishing info. After 18 books, He Who Hesitates is the first run of books with a new publisher. So McBain has changed publishers at this point. So this book and the next three or the next two are are published in America by Delacorte Press, which is Dell Publishing, basically. And they sort of started out as pulp publishers doing detective stories, movie movie magazines, that sort of thing. And then they became a full publisher, now owned by Penguin Random House. Now we've got the situation where the hardback has really become the main form of the book and the paperbacks are getting issued a year later. That's the way it is. And it stays the same in the UK, being published by Hamish Hamilton. But the paperback situation changes here because I think from my research, what I've been trying to do is actually track down who published things first. I think this is the first book that's published in the UK in paperback in pan edition, Mm. which may be the edition Steve-O has, but we'll explore that in the bonus episode as we normally do. Bizarrely, the order of things that things come out in the UK is a bit different. So if there's two books in a year, I think Doll comes out before He Who Hesitates. Hmm. Not that it affects the story particularly, but it just means that they're juggled around in terms of when they release them. And now there's a sort of three to four year gap between the hardbacks coming out and the paperbacks in the UK. Except for a couple, <laughs> like Lady Lady, I Did It in the Emptied Hours, which don't come out until the 80s. <laughs> And see them die, which came out in four square crime edition, just like a one-off. So the, the, it's a real weird mishmash of publishers for paperbacks in in the UK, and that sort of starts a little bit later in America as well. But this starts the pan editions, and I think probably between us, pan editions would make up the majority of the ones we've got potentially. Certainly, of these oh. next few books, they're really common. Would you like to know something about the French edition? Yes, please. I know you would. It was called. It was released in 1965 in in France as Entre... Let me try my best French accent. (coughs) Entre deux chaises. I know I can say this. If I don't think about it, I can say it. Entre deux chaises. Entre deux chaises. Enter the... Shed. No. Fridge. Enter the fridge. That would probably be a... Entre deux chaises. Chair. Between two chairs. Right. I'm not entirely sure whether that's a like a French idiom for something like that's... Like, re- between a rock and a hard place? Or Maybe, oh, that might be it. Like between oh, two chairs. Being indecisive. Mm. Actually, End yeah, of... that's probably it, isn't it? Yeah, that's... But it was part of a thing called the, the Serre Noir, the Black Series. So basically, they're no, mm. noir books. And, yeah. and this was from the collection Folio Policière, which mm. began in 1955 by the publisher Editions Gallimard. So if you actually look up the covers for them, these... Uh, Serie Noir books are sort of amazing just black covers with just text on them so they'd be amazing to have a collection of those and Mm. there was hundreds and hundreds of those by the looks of it Mm. but I quite like that uh, Between Two Chairs yeah don't know where to sit down yeah (laughs) getting into the book quick bit of background what I do know is that in the McBain archives there exists two drafts of this book a first draft and a final draft. Hmm. One was 179 pages and the other was 186 pages. 
and there was a six-page typed-up outline as well. So there's some archive information for people. Not that that will help you no. with any understanding of the book, except for the fact that it seems likely that he only he did a first draft and then he did a second draft and that was it. Sounds mm. like he wasn't hesitating. Oh, no, quite. he was. He was zipping through them. He wasn't caught between two chairs at all <laughs> no. when he was writing this. He was firmly on yep. one chair. He picked that chair, stuck with it. And put it in front of his typewriter. And went hell for leather. But I think, actually, to be honest, he did, though, didn't he, with these things? Mm. He didn't take long to write them. I think they were about a month or something, he said. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah, you kind of get, like that from particularly from the early ones there is a, a real spontaneity about them I, I yeah. think it's just uh, they seem to be kind of affected by whatever his mood is at the time and it just kind of it, it is the feeling of someone just kind of spilling this stuff out onto the page which is great yeah there's um, an effortlessness effortlessness to them see to I have trouble with French words yeah well yeah <laughs> No, I agree. I absolutely agree. And I, th- I think that's one of the qualities that lasts to this day mm-hmm. and that makes them what they are. I found a f- couple of contemporary reviews of it from the time. I found one, funnily enough, by our friend Anthony Boucher. Um, can I? Does he really like it? Well, I'll, I'll let you have a look, actually. And I found one, bizarrely, from the Irish Times. Ooh, oh. they're mentioned on the back of my book. Oh, I, bet, I wonder if that's where they get Gripping this. all the way. Oh, I can't. See. Oh, yeah. This, this book is, is not gripping all the way. <laughs> yeah. But if the one on the couldn't possibly be described. The one on the left there, Steve, is Anthony Busher. So if you want to have a perhaps have a look through and scan that for the ladies and gentlemen. Uh, right. Okay. Well, do, do you want me to read it or do, uh, do, 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 do you can do if you like? A bit often anonymous. Right. In a way, false next to us, next. Out loud. All <laughs> oh, right. Sorry. Yes, I was just reading that. Yeah. An 87th Precinct novel is the subtitle of Ed McBain's He Who Hesitates, but this is only true in that the action takes place in the area policed by the 87th Precinct. Our old friend Steve Carella and the rest are only bit players, often anonymous, and the novel deals with the problems of a man who cannot quite bring himself to go to the police. In a way, this is a false and exasperating book. (gasps) An exercise in illegitimate suspense created solely by hoodwinking the reader. Oof. But it is highly readable (laughs) with vivid vignettes of city life and delicately touching treatment of an interracial love story. I think he's hit on a few points there. Mm -hmm. He has, yeah. Perhaps Morgan would like to read out the Irish Times one from... You don't have to do it in an accent. Good, because I can't. (laughs) Mr. M- Mr. <laughs> McBean. Oh, I'm sure we have some Irish listeners. Maybe that'll drive them away. I could only eat that. Yeah, without the accent. Uh, Mr. McBain's manor is the 87th precinct of New York City. Well, yeah, that's where you're wrong. Yeah. But um, in this story, we see the police marginally and through the eyes of an upstate mountainy man who has come mm. to the biggest... <laughs> mountainy man. Mountainy Apparently, man. yeah. An upstate mountainy man who has come to the big city <laughs> to sell his woodwork, picked up a girl in a bar... Uh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't say this because this, this is going to ruin yeah, this for everyone. Blank off the if there's anything gives away. Then it tells you the entire plot. Yeah, and as written with the hard economy of the professional, the story is gripping all the way. And Mr. McBain shows a surprising streak of wit and tenderness in handling the big man's relationship with a beautiful coloured girl. The language is obviously a bit tricky to deal with the use of coloured girl, but then mm. it, it reflects the times and it reflects Absolutely, how it's used in the yeah. book as well. So we can't really escape from. Having it reading that out literally from the the passages there, I did get one other review as well from the Spectator, 
from an, uh, they have a thing called It's a Crime, written by someone called Hester Makig, which is an interesting <laughs> name. He Who Hesitates by Ed McBain. Another 87th Precinct story, but throughout the action, the reader is waiting to go into the police station rather than seeing a crime dealt with from within it. Roger Broom, a likeable countryman, is desperately anxious to visit the precinct, but why? One doesn't know. One feels that if he doesn't hurry up, it'll be too late. Too late for what? There is something baffling here. A puzzlement for the reader to penetrate. A puzzlement? Well... It's a bit odd to actually have an Anthony Busher review that seems the least positive mm. out of all of them. Mm. But he still sort of says it's good writing. Oh, yeah. He's very fond of the, the series um, in all of its kind of... Myriad form. Yeah, indeed. But I think he, he's, he likes the familiar uh, aspects of it, definitely. As does, obviously, do we. But um, I think the absence of many of those there will probably have yeah. taken him aback a little. It's definitely an interesting book, and we'll get stuck into it in a second. But I do want to say, so the title, He Who Hesitates, do we know where that comes from? What, as a phrase? Yeah. I don't. I feel like I probably have heard it, and I can't think of it. So we know it, the full version of it, He Who Hesitates is Lost, mm. is the full version of the it's phrase. The Bible sounds like something could be in the it, Bible. What's that Radio 4 quiz game where it's just people guessing quotations? Oh, It's uh, really dismal. Uh, yeah, because almost every answer is was it Shakespeare? Was it the Bible? <laughs> it's yeah. I've got a book, big book of quotations at home. Well, you won't find this in it because <laughs> it's not the Bible and it's not Shakespeare. And in fact, the original quotation isn't "He who hesitates is lost." Although the concept of the phrase apparently, you know, it's a fairly universal idea. If you wait to do something, you'll lose your chance to do it. Mm. Is the notion behind it? Apparently, it came from a play written by a chap called Joseph Addison in 1711, a British or English playwright, politician, essayist. And this play is called Cato, and it was about someone who was... It's set in the time of Julius Caesar. It's about resistance to Julius Caesar. And there's a line in it that is the phrase, the woman that deliberates is lost. And that's where this phrase is adapted Mm. from. She who hesitates. Yes, exactly. But apparently this play, Cato... Was cut seventeen eleven. It's it was quite big in America, All right. and because of the things expressed in it, it was quite big on fermenting revolution. Ooh, as, as, I mean fomenting, don't I? Not yes. fermenting <laughs> revolution. <laughs> fermenting revolution. So yeah, apparently it was it was performed to people like George Washington, and a lot of the the phrases and sayings associated with the American Revolution were adapted from this play as well. And what I'd like to say is, in a funny little roundabout linking way, is Joseph Addison, who wrote the play from where the title of the book comes, founded The Spectator from where the review came that I just read out before. Albeit this is the modern version of The Spectator, not the magazine from 1711. Didn't run that long. Funny little... Small world! Isn't it? Small small world time-wise. Just the odd... Couple of hundred years yeah. and no actual connection, but <laughs> that's pretty good. That no, that's the best I can do on on deep trivia. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's better than I would have done. Definitely, it's pretty deep. Well, that's it deep. Is. That is right. Both okay. deep and deep and trivial in, in both senses of the word. So let's get into it. So I've got to ask Morgan. You've not read it before. Uh, my first time, definitely. Yes. So could you? Do you want to give us a little bit of a? Your initial thoughts on it? 
I really liked it. I wasn't sure what to make of it at first. Uh, like our friend Mr. Boucher, I was I was initially a bit taken aback by the very different approach. Yeah, actually, I, I think it's 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 a pretty powerful, if unusual, entry into the series, really. And it man- it manages to get sort of some some good character stuff in and and a bit of humour, but manages to remain really dark. Yeah. Which I quite liked as well. It's certainly the most different out of all of the ones so far mm. in a run of 19 books. Mm. I don't think there's... I mean, I don't particularly think there's been a point where you've had like five in a row that you could say these are all exactly the same. There's always some yeah. variation, but this is the most not like the other ones, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, as we we always point out, he does like to play with the formula and, and use it for very different ends, but this one he pretty much throws the entire formula right out and does yeah. something different. I don't, you mentioned about it being um, a different publisher. I don't know whether that's got anything to do with it, because rereading it again, it was almost like he'd written it as a bit of a, a reset for somebody coming new. Because it, it allows the reader to explore a lot more of the city as opposed to that's a good point the actually detectives and the, you know I didn't know that the publisher was new until you mentioned it earlier and you just wonder whether that's got something to do with it like well I've got a new publisher right well I'll I'll almost start again here and I'll I'll have this character who is a stranger to this city as our yeah, I wonder a, 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 a sizable chunk of my readers, well, and yeah, I don't know. Potentially, I suppose we don't know who his agent was or how much his editors and publishers were informing what they wanted from him. Yeah. Perhaps he they were just, saying, "Oh, they're getting all too similar," or you know, maybe. You, you, so he's mm. like, right. Or, or perhaps Simon and Schuster were like, "Well, maybe that's not the type of thing we want anymore." Mm. Well, I don't know. I don't know how book contracts work, but it, it, it may have been possibly. that they they didn't want to put it out, and he took any. Oh. took the hump and went somewhere else maybe i don't know if i could ever get into that archive i could probably yes, find out indeed. i know that the letters to this publisher are in there but but of all 19 books it would certainly score least on uh, 87th bingo wouldn't uh, it yeah you'd be it, it, in might, trouble. it might even score zero uh, because yeah. there's none of the the usual you know i think the only thing i i was definitely weather, I definitely it. thinking about the 87th precinct bingo card so this is the system we've mm-hmm. We've theoretically devised it that you could have perhaps a measure of 15 things that are common across most of the books, or most of these things are common across most of the books. And this is definitely, it, I think it ticks. It still manages to get the description of Corella in there mm. because the main character's observing him. And so he can describe him, mm-hmm. you know, as, as him seeing him. It's got a bit about weather, but not in a particularly descriptive mm. way. It's, yeah. It doesn't factor as large as it does in other books. The city is never described as a woman. We don't see the police do most things. Mm. Um, Andy Parker's an idiot in it. Detective Andy Parker's an idiot in it, but he's not a bigot. Mm-hmm. I don't think in this one. And other than that, I mean, do we count comedy character? I mean, this has sort of got some comic characters well, not in, in the, but more yeah. tragic, I think, rather yeah, than comic. Really. Yeah, so it would score very low on Very, the, very on low the on the... Yeah. You, you wouldn't be shouting house or... No. no. Far from yeah. it, in fact. If you were given this one in a game of 87th Precinct Bingo, and you'd, t- you know, <laughs> you'd be like, oh... But you'd damber away, wouldn't you? You would. You'd go and have a, you know, go and have a tray of chips. But yeah, I, I agree with Morgan that it's a, um, it was very engaging, and even rereading it, I just could not remember for the life of me why he wanted to go <laughs> to the precinct and what, 
what on earth had gone on the night before, and it it has to throw back pieces yeah. that cr- start creeping in halfway through, don't... Uh, yeah, that's right, yeah. And it all starts fairly innocently. But you know he's a bit of an oddball, this guy. He come, he's quite a nice guy. He comes across yeah. fine, but a bit naive, a bit a bit strange. He comes across and, as a bit of a rube, doesn't he? Yeah. A bit, bit mountainy. Yeah, very mountainy. Yeah, he is, yeah, he's a mountainy man. Bumpkin, <laughs> isn't he? He's a bit of a... Bit of a rude, bit of a bumpkin. A mothered, a a mothered bumpkin, really. A is, mothered is, bumpkin. Is how he comes across. Um, the new album from Peter Gabriel. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but not necessarily sinister, really. Well, this is an interesting thing. I, I got a few comments from people on Twitter about this. My particular take on it was, the first time I read it, I... I was a little disheartened because I think when I first read it, I was well into like a run of reading mm. 87th Precincts, like put one down, pick one up immediately. And for this was a bit of a shock to be broken out of that pattern of the storytelling. And you sort of think, well, he's just, you know, he's an all right idiot who's got himself into a situation. Reading it again this time, I was not so keen on him. It's, 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 it's I, I mean, wasn't he's not anywhere near heroic by any means. It's uh, interesting as a, a character study, isn't it? Because I think behind the sort of bumpkiny exterior, there's there's a lot more quite subtly hinted at yeah. throughout, isn't there? Really? Well, a couple of the comments that I noted down from some of our Twitter followers about this was that uh, he was described as this is one villain without a soul, a monster who thinks he's a nice guy. I think that's very true as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a comment uh, from our friend Stella saying, in the beginning you see a guy who wants to defy racial norms, has friendly chats with criminals, gives worn-out sad old ladies Valentine's Day cards, and it seems he's going to do the right thing and turn himself in. So she thinks that McBain's trying to get us to pity him. Mm. It's an interesting author's trick to try and make you on side with a character, whilst also making sure you know that he he is horrible. Mm. <laughs> But the, the thing about him being a monster, you only know that at the end, don't you? As you're reading it, you know that there's something not quite right about him. And you yeah. know in the way he's behaving, he's very strange. And a lot of his inner monologue mm. kind of supports that. But but pulling the other way is the fact that he still seems very determined to, you <laughs> know, go to the police station and he, he you know, the, I don't know. It's, all, it's, it's a book about push and pull, isn't mm. it? So he's sort of... Do I want to do this thing and, and, and get... So just to outline it, just to make it clear, so the main character is called Roger Broom. It's, it's, we follow him through the story rather than it being a case from the cops going out and coming across this person or him being a suspect, like in most of the stories. We follow him to where he's staying. In fact, we start with him in his, in his brooming house, which is a bit sort of only the grotty part of the 87th Precinct, which is a fairly grotty precinct all around mm-hmm. anyway. Not quite Skid Row, but pretty low rent. And we follow him as he tries repeatedly to go to the police station for reasons we don't know. And we have the flashbacks. So it's all told in a sort of push-pull of the flashbacks of him acting in one situation. And then we have the, the, the push and pull of him sort of internally arguing the toss with himself, really, mm. about whether I should go to the, the police station. He does. There's quite a good bit where McBain says he sort of does that thing of like setting himself a if the next car goes past mm. his blue or whatever, then I'll go to the <laughs> precinct if if it's whatever, if it's red or, you know, I can't remember quite what it was. Mm. Games that you do play, don't you, sometimes, when you're killing time or you're trying to decide whether you should or shouldn't do something, all these silly little things. 
But when you finish reading it, you look back over it, I think the description of him as a monster can fit quite happily because he's really quite manipulating mm. for, a, for a mountainy man. Yeah. I think you, you early on get the impression that he's being manipulated by people, but he's, he's really not. It's him who's, who's, yeah. who's actually sort of doing that. And it's because he's big and tall and he's handsome and he gets attention drawn to him very quickly. So he very quickly within, I think it's in the, is it in the first? Yeah, it's even in the first chapter. He sort of gets chatted up by the girl in the shop mm. who is important to the rest of the story. <clears throat> My voice is breaking again. This happens every time. <laughs> it was important to the rest of the story and is important to the idea of this notion of why the word coloured kept coming up because it's about a, quote, coloured girl going out with a white man. So it's part of the way that McBain discusses issues of the time, sort of racial issues and the way people perceive these cross-racial relationships. Talking about that shop, he goes to the shop to buy these Valentine's cards. You see, he goes past the paperbacks in the drugstore and there's one there and he makes a point of mentioning it in capital letters called How to Do It on Airplanes. (laughs) And I... I can only assume that this is McBain taking the mickey out of like those novelty books that mm. would turn up. Because I did carefully search for the phrase how to do it on airplanes in, <laughs> on the internet. And fortunately, nothing came up. Oh, God. I presume that's supposed to be one of those sort of novelty books you could buy for, you know, a few cents in the paperbacks of there. And it's not long after that that he, go- he actually goes to the police station, but doesn't go in. And he's sat outside in the park and he meets a chap called Clyde Warren. Is he the guy with the poodle? He's the guy with the poodle. This is interesting because he discusses about... um, It's an interesting way of... I'll tell you what would... Yeah, here we go. Here's something that's sort of the bingo card. One of the things that McBain likes to do is to talk about police procedure and explain some matter of, of police operating procedure or law or something like that yeah he does it via that he does guy, it via this yeah. guy doesn't it who, who explains carefully the difference between a felony and a misdemeanor yeah. felony being perhaps sodomy and a misdemeanor being indecent exposure the police may have got him on a misdemeanor before but they've never got him on a felony <laughs> and he's yeah he's called clyde warren he's got a pencil mustache and a gaily colored bow tie mm. he sounds like very well, he sounds like he's going to be one of the comedy characters because he's like, would you like to come with me back to my place? I have a poodle. But he's just a sort of... Roger says no. Yeah. Like, Rod- oh, please. Yeah, Roger Broom says no. I don't think Roger Broom sort of twigs that it's... Well, I, we don't have to say that he's homosexual. I mean, presumably he has homosexual urges. We don't know anything about the character. He's more... He's a sex pest, basically. He but he's a lonely, tragic figure. Mm. Well, he must be out in that park at... Eight o'clock in the morning, or whenever you are. Yeah. Purpose, Should be walking the, the poodle, he might stand more of a chance. Yeah, indeed. Mm. Conversation starter. It is. That's when Roger's faffing around, isn't he? Because the flashbacks don't start until relatively late, halfway through or something, do they not? So um, good, good the first first half of the book's him farting around, yeah, like yeah, umming and ahhing and popping in the shop. Like, and... Bain definitely doesn't want to tip his hand too soon. No, he doesn't, he? no. Um, and so reading all that, you're kind of like, oh, God, yeah, you, you obviously know he's something awful's happened. But, <laughs> but you don't, yeah, not until chapter four not... do you start to get a, the, the flashbacks to him meeting someone somewhere. What do you think about the way the police do come in? What little taste of the police characters we have in this? You've just got Andy Parker being a bit of a jerk. 
Yeah. In the coffee shop. Mm. Which is um, one of his specialities. Yeah. He has an argument with the guy behind the counter about a kill, someone being killed with a hatchet, which is a reference uh, to the yes. last yeah, uh, yeah. the last book as well, which quite conveniently places this book in time as being in February 1964. In fact, it tells you it's exactly it's February the 13th, 1964, is when this story of takes course, place. Yeah. Thank you for that, Andy Parker. <laughs> So yep. you see and him the, briefly, don't you? And then we see Corella for a little bit longer, but honestly not too much longer, in yeah. that he goes for a meal with uh, Teddy and Roger gets the table next to him and orders a mushroom omelette. In order mm-hmm. to sort of... Coffee weird, with it. In order to weirdly eavesdrop on them. Yeah. By which point we're, we're certainly starting to think, this this fellow isn't right. No, no, exactly, yeah. He's already been put off going to the police once by having been introduced to Andy Parker, who... I can understand that putting anyone off going to a police station, to be honest, but... Yeah. I think he thinks he's going to kind of, I don't know, approach Corella in the street or something. Mm. That, that must be that his kind of, of his plan, wasn't intention, it? But, well, um, I think it's a quite a clever trick by McBain, really, is to get us to be a bit on side with Roger Broom, because we as readers love Corella, so we can understand why, mm. in comparison to... If you meet Detective Andy Parker and you meet Detective Steve Corella... You can understand why a character would feel more drawn to Corella because his his whole being is supposed to be more give off more of a sort of approachable, sympathetic but powerful sort mm. of someone you'd trust as a policeman rather than Andy Parker who's a slob mm. and a just a prat. Yeah. So I think it's quite clever. He's trying to get you to say, "Oh well, he's like me. He sees something in Corella. He thinks he might be able to go to him." Like if I was in a trouble, I'd want to see Steve Corella, yeah. not you know Andy Parker. Absolutely. Oh, the the encounter with Corella also is an encounter with with Teddy Corella, yeah, which also allows us to see Broom's kind of slightly weird and pervy sort of obsession with the female beauty, which is contrasted with his revulsion for plainness. Yeah, which is a thing that seems to crop up. He doesn't make any other observations about women much, really beyond are they pretty or are they plain? Yeah, yeah, and as you. We, that we, feeds his anger into absolutely. how he treats them. Yeah. Which is, and this is something that I think a couple of people mentioned when I was talking about it on Twitter as well. This is sadly a very modern thing to be discussing still. And I can't <laughs> believe we're still. The, the treatment of people of colour and the treatment of women at the moment is really big headline news, especially when you have some of the high powered pillocks in the world like Donald Trump and That's... the language surrounding a lot of that stuff. It's unbelievable. It's grim, isn't it? You it, can, can actually imagine Roger Broom being recast as a, a, a shining beacon uh, for the uh, for the alt right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. You put change the blurb on the back of the book and put the right cover on it. I'm sure they could sell plenty to some of those folks. Yeah. Ugh, that'd be horrible. Yeah, it's a sadly relevant story in mm. a way. McBain definitely is not trying to say that that is a, that the character of Roger Broom is good in any way, I don't oh, think. He's no. just playing very good author's tricks on sort of pulling you onto his side a little bit mm. and taking you on the journey with him. But he's a, he's a bit manky. Mm. Don't like him very much. We get a, a couple of other little bits with cops. We get one investigation that's actually happening, which is the theft of a refrigerator from the place he's staying. And it's been investigated by Hal Willis who we haven't seen for ages in the books, I don't think, and Cotton Hawes. And I think this is the first instance of a couple where someone mishears Cotton Hawes' name (laughs) and thinks he's just been introduced to Detective Horse. (laughs) (laughs) Which, frankly, McBain should have written a spin-off series of children's books (laughs) called Detective Horse. 
I'd have read it. Me too. In fact, it would have been its own podcast. <laughs> Rightly so. And there's a nice bit at the very, very end where Corella and Maya are leaving the 87th Precinct mm. together in the snow and then have a snowball fight, which is quite nice. But those little moments are quite clever little tricks to tell you all these, you know, about the characters mm. that they like their relationship to each other. Yeah. It's, you know, you see very little of the cops in this, but you do actually get stuff that moves the relationships forward. Yeah. So I quite like that. That's what I like. As do I. Willis and, and, and Horse have uh, kind of fairly thrown off by the, uh, the the sort of appearance of this guy being a, a, a harmless bumpkin as well, aren't they, really? Mm. Who's just been got drunk by someone else in the building who, who crops up in the room, a guy called Fook Shanahan. Which is <laughs> a great, great name. F-double-O-K. I've never heard that nickname anywhere else. Nope. Fook Shanahan. But he keeps cropping up. And he's like really pleased that the landlady's been robbed because he thinks she's an old bag. <laughs> so he turns up and he gets his. Yeah, he's really happy. His glass that he presumably uses for brushing his teeth and water and rinsing his mouth. It's like fill it up with whiskey. You'll have some uh, of that. He actually seems seems to have more of a clue what's gone on than uh, he wants to say out loud, doesn't he? Yeah. Drop, dropping some dark hints about yeah, a man couldn't lift that refrigerator. Well, I mean, a man your a, size, a man your size, of course. Yeah, do you think he knows or? He's got an inkling that something funny's gone on, hasn't he, I think? Yeah. He seems like he's a bit of a... Well, he's, he is a gossip, mm. and he's someone who revels in, in, in stories and, and stuff, so Intrigue. it may be that he's gone round to drink with him under the pretext... Do you know, I've not really thought of it like that. That's quite interesting. He's gone round to, to see him on the pretext of sharing a drink to delight yeah. in the misfortune of others, but actually he might be just doing his own little bit of... Yeah. That big fella could have done it. I'm hoping, hoping he's going to get him drunk and he'll say something uh, incriminating so he's got another great story to go and gossip to someone else with next time he yeah. takes his toothbrush glass round to someone's flat. Well, yeah, he, he crops up again later when, when Roger and his uh, new friend are back at the rooming house. And he crops up with someone else as well. So there's like a party of like four of them in the room drinking yeah. drinking whiskey out of three glasses or whatever it is, mm. which features the, you must never put a banana in the refrigerator, cha-cha-cha. <laughs> now, fellas, did you watch the link I sent oh, you? Oh, yes. I did, yes. I was very pleased to find, because it seemed like such a weird line, <laughs> if, if it... <laughs> For two characters who've never met in a book to suddenly bond over the phrase, you never put a banana in the refrigerator, cha-cha-cha, just seemed very odd. But I'm sure, presumably, our American listeners of a certain pedigree, and I don't know how long this lasted for, must know from where this came, which was the Chiquita banana advert, which is just an animated nightmare. It's, it's fairly crazy, isn't it? I'd heard I'd heard people on various TV shows singing kind of the first couple of lines, so I think it might be something that's fairly well embedded in popular culture. But uh... well, I'm not surprised given it's got a it's got a giant human sized female banana singer <laughs> singing a song to smaller bananas about whether they're ripe or not, and then basically killing them and yep. putting them in salads or feeding them to babies yep. or threatening them with refrigerators. Indeed. It's a, a wonder to behold. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny enough, it's a funny little bit of anim- animation. It's quite sort of in the start. I think it must have been made by Warner Brothers or something it, like that. It has that it's, look to it, or, it? Or like, I mean, it's like a style. Looney Tunes type, yeah. Technicolor type thing, isn't it? But it was not. I was not expecting to come across that when I looked up. You must never put a banana in the refrigerator. 
cha-cha-cha. <laughs> it was very exciting. <clears throat> and appropriately, I've highlighted it in yellow on my notes here. So, what have we got to talk about for this book? Is there anything else particularly? I mean, again, spoilers-wise, this is... We don't want to give away spoilers. I think we've been very good at not... Uh... For this particularly, because you, you know, it's such a grower. This book, it's yeah, not... you, you know, throughout something awful's happened, but you can't yeah. quite. We don't want to tell you exactly what that awful thing no, is. No, and you you're left kind of wondering, and as it goes on, you kind of start piecing it together, and yeah. If anyone does want a spoiler, they can just look up that uh, Irish Times review, and it'll blow the entire thing. Yes, but, you did uh... very well to to edit <laughs> as you went there. I think. But, um... Although one thing I think perhaps we need to say. I think we can't discuss this without mentioning the fact that there is no happy conclusion law-wise or police-wise at the end of this story. Yeah, normally we see these things resolved. We're used to it one way or another, whether they make a successful arrest or the criminal meets an end some other way. So like the deaf man we know got away, but the the effects of the his, crime not with his spoils yes. yeah yeah often. and the immediate peril is over and whereas this is this is really becomes because of this just becomes slice of life albeit that life being a horrible one mm-hmm. yeah because it's all about a, a guy who's seemingly going to seek justice all the way through the book and then doesn't yeah i, I don't know if that makes it truly unique in the canon of things mm. We we may come across others. We we may, but off the top of my head, I can't I think of any. I can't really. There might. I don't know. I lose track. It'd be interesting if in the next book, reading it, I can't remember whether I whether I did at the time, but whether there's, there's referred to the consequences of this story would, well, in that. That will be something to look out for. Certainly, it will be something to look out for. Although, don't look out for it in the next podcast. But it will be something to look out for <laughs> in the future. Go. There's a little teaser. Just a couple of points to make. The character of Roger Broom comes down from a place called Carey near Huddleston, Hmm. which is the place where Cotton Horse goes skiing in the book uh, Storm from the Empty Hours. So there's is that in Huddleston? Yeah. Um, So that's basically where the skiing is. Yeah, Yeah, there's references to the winter sports up there, aren't there? So Mm. uh, yeah, excellent. That that ties in nicely. Yeah, there's actually and also enables. The character of Roger Broom and and the the girl he meets uh, Amelia at the shop, who's of Spanish background, she just refers to herself as a coloured girl. It gives them a chance to talk about social positioning because he says, "Oh, you know where where I come from? That's you know where the skiing is." And she's like, "Did you ever see any coloured people going skiing?" She's like, "There's maybe one or two in the whole of the United States, but it's certainly an interesting thing about class and and access to things and and that's yeah." One of those little ways of talking about that sort of stuff. I like it when there's a few little links between stories. Mm. Not that you need to know other stories to pick up any 87th Precinct book. Indeed. They are definitely all designed so that any of them will be a good uh, jumping in point. Even this one, which is completely different to the others, it works very happily as a standalone. We should move on to looking at our ratings for this. We need to fire up Kenneth and we need to start summing up, I reckon. I've had him on standby. Beep bloop. There you go. Look at this. <laughs> so Oof. Kenneth calculates every number nearly every time. Honestly, is our computer that's used for our score archive. We've been in a bit of a overall downward trajectory we really have, with scores, yeah. haven't we? For the last ten books. Looking back, I don't know if that seems fair, really, but well, well, this you week, think Kenneth lies. 
No, and I'm, I'm sure he's, he's right. It just it seems crazy to me. But uh, there we go. Well, I think we're going to go to Steve-O as the first summer-upper of the evening to give us his thoughts and input for Kenneth. Yeah, it's a funny one, really, to score, isn't it? Because mm. it is so different. So from an overall perspective, perhaps it's lacking some of the usual great 87th Precinct traits. But then again, it is highly enjoyable and quite suspenseful. And and if you didn't know it was an 87th Precinct yeah. thing, you could perhaps read it happily Interesting. without any qualms. So offsetting both of those, I'm going to say... 70. 70 police shields awarded by Stephen Royston. Okay, and I think I'll go to Morgan now as a new reader to this story and see how it's taken him. Well, I I think I'm going to go a little higher. I was was excited to come to the story. It was really nice to see a story that fits still perfectly in the continuity of the series but takes a completely different approach. I think, as a new reader, the, the... central character Roger Broom I think is really interestingly drawn and kind of in a way foreshadows sort of some of the characters you find in more recent mystery authors like James Elroy these kind of characters who can be quite sympathetic but then on the there's this monstrous side bubbling under all the time as well yeah and also like maybe a bit sort of a bit Jim Thompson-y a bit Jim Thompson-y yeah or maybe even a bit of Norman Bates in there too. Interesting. Um... Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I think that might be a good point. Actually, there is because there is a lot of literal reference to his mother, and he talks to her on the phone once. This character doesn't it? Doesn't he? Mm. And it, he does think about leaving his mother behind. He can't do it, and that's given what we know about Hitch and Hunter mm. together working on on the birds and and the aborted Marnie and, and the influence that Hitch had on suspense in general, that presumably is one of the influences as well. Yeah. Anyway, in, in summary, I, I think it's a corker. It does kind of stand outside the series, but that's that's no bad thing, really. Uh, we'll go for a, a hearty 78, please, Shields. 78. Okay, so I need to sum it up now. The first time I read this, as I mentioned before, I was really sort of taken aback by it, and it, it's not one I've read... I think I may have read it twice before now, whereas some of the others I've I've dug out over and over again. This time, I think I took to it better, possibly because I generally sort of knew what was coming up. But I think I could see the craft in it a bit more as a standalone piece rather than as, you know, the next one in the 87th Precinct series. So I think... Mm, I don't know. I do, <laughs> I do like... <laughs> I do like the way... It's a tough one to score, right? Yeah, well, I do like the way the cops... The bits of the 87th Precinct that that creep through, I think, are quite cleverly done. It's skillfully sort of inserted into this narrative. And I I, I read it, and it read it a bit more cinematically to me this time. I could see Mm. it as a TV episode or a film or something like that. And in fact, on that point, Terence Davies, the, the, the writer, filmmaker, who made of Time and the City, the documentary about Liverpool, he's a Liverpool film... Uh, well, Liverpool writer. He was mate. He was writing an adaptation of He Who Hesitates, which I think was sort of aborted for lack of interest from companies to make it. Seems very strange that a Liverpool filmmaker or someone who's well associated with Liverpool and and sort of that reflective on a very British perspective would be adapting this. But that's because it's a good story. You could yeah. get a really good film out of this, I reckon. A good suspense film, definitely. Oh, oh, I don't know. 
try to talk my way around to not having to give a number here. But I think I will go with a score of 73, please, Shields. So that gives us, as Kenneth ticks over... the little... We might be in rounding up territory here, are we? Yeah, I thought so. <sighs> well, I think we're going to... Well, rounding up, rounding down. What do you do and Hark the 87th Precinct podcast? I think we need to give it, to be fair... You round up, you can't change the rounding. You can't change the rounding halfway through. <laughs> 19 books in. We've not time to reprogram Kenneth. Well, didn't, oh. I, didn't we round down? No. You, oh, we round down, don't yeah, we? Yeah, we round down. Oh, no. shit, yeah. Sorry. Sorry for swearing then. I knew we did something totally mad. So we've got to round down, haven't oh, we? Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Well, rounding down. I feel like to... going back and changing mine to a... a... Police shield higher seventy three to, to cheat the system, but that's not how it works, is it? No, I think we have to stick with after. You know, we may have years from now as we come to a close with this podcast. Maybe we'll have a special episode where we do any rejigging and sorting. Maybe. You never know. But for now, Kenneth has put, popped out his punched card, and it reads seventy three police shields as the score for this. <laughs> Is there a comparable one that's scored 73? Uh, 73, that is also the score for, well, very similar to the likes of The Pusher, Killer's Choice, Lady Lady I Did It. Ah, right, um, okay. Well, there you are, 73 police shields for He Who Hesitates. Mm. We've got some other bits and pieces to talk about in our bonus episode, which we will record after this. We're going to talk about some horror movies, and we're going to talk about our usual look at the book covers, our editions, what the books smell like, and then you can join us again for the main podcast next month, which will be the story, Doll. That's the second in 1965, Doll. So until then, we're going to say goodbye, Mr. Stevo. Goodbye. Morgan. Fare thee well. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Bye.